You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. On October 3rd, 2008, 33-year-old Jill Tatro was driving his car following some cryptic and mysterious directions that would eventually lead him to a garage in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He had recently arrived from DC and now separated, he had been using the popular dating site Plenty of Fish, hoping to meet someone. He had recently started talking to a woman named Sheena, who went by the profile name Spiderwebs, and the pair had hit it off immediately. Jill said that Sheena was keen to meet and almost pushy to get a plan together. Although the directions were odd and confusing, he just assumed that Sheena didn't want to give him her physical address for some reason and drove out to pick her up for dinner in a movie. Sheena said she would leave the garage door open for him to drive into. He reached the location just after 7pm. He couldn't see anyone and the garage door was only partially raised, so he parked up and entered on foot. Jill remembered feeling uneasy about everything, but shook the feelings off and carried on anyway. He stood in the dark room for a second, when suddenly he felt someone grab him from behind and start prodding him with a stun gun. He turned around and came face to face with a man towering over him, wearing a hockey mask. The masked man took out a gun, pointed it at Jill and ordered him to get on the ground. Once he was on the floor, he forced duct tape over his eyes. Adrenaline raced through him, and Jill said he made a decision that if he was going to die, it would not be on the masked man's terms. He ripped the tape off his eyes and grabbed the gun out of the man's hands. In this moment, he realised the gun was plastic and fake. The pair struggled for a few minutes before Jill rolled under the garage door and made it outside. He crawled into the alley behind the garage, before the masked man started grabbing his legs and tried to pull him back in. The effects of the stun gun had left his legs like jelly and he was trying to move as quickly as he possibly could. With one last push and with everything he had, he fought his way out of the man's grasp. Outside of the alley, he saw a couple out for a walk. Jill begged them for help, but the couple were scared that this was part of a potential plan to mug them. The man chased him out and assured the couple there was nothing to worry about and his friend was just messing around. They quickly left the scene but the couple had clearly startled the man in the hockey mask and he retreated back towards the garage. Jill finally made it to his truck and managed to escape. He never spoke of this incident to the police, embarrassed that he was duped by the fake profile and terrified that the man would find him and kill him. He convinced himself that it was not as serious as he'd thought and he said no more about it. Little did anyone know, the same thing was about to happen to someone else and the outcome would be far worse. 38-year-old John Brian Altinger, known to his friends as Johnny, worked as an oilfield equipment manufacturer. Described as honest and hard-working, he was quiet, but once someone got to know him, he had a great sense of humour. He, like Jill, was also using dating sites to meet people. He had just started chatting to a lady named Jen on Plenty of Fish. After building a good connection, Johnny told his friends he was going to meet up with her in person. His brother said he was looking for love, and thought he finally might have found it. He sent his friends an email telling them of his plans and also sent them the directions of the location that he and Jen would be meeting at too. Days would pass and friends would not hear a word from Johnny. Never out of touch for this long, everyone knew something was off. 
they all became even more concerned after they received some strange emails. In these emails, Johnny claimed that Jen had taken him on a surprise trip to Costa Rica and would be there until mid-December. His brother Gary said it was the weirdest message he had ever received. Shortly after this, Johnny's employers received an email informing them of his resignation, which came as a total shock. They emailed back, but got no response from him when they requested a forwarding address to send his final paycheck to. Johnny's friends eventually broke into his condo to start their own investigation. Despite his emails saying he was travelling, to their concern, they found his passport and an empty suitcase with no indication that he had packed for a holiday. Nor had he left the apartment in a good place for someone that was leaving for two months. Following this, the Edmonton Police Service now agreed there was reason to be concerned and subsequently launched a homicide investigation. Fortunately for the police, they followed the directions that Johnny had sent to his friends and were unknowingly led to the same garage that Gilles had been lured into. The garage was being rented by a man named Mark Twitchell. But who was he? And why would Johnny and Gilles have ended up at his garage? Mark Andrew Twitchell was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada in 1979. He had dreams of making big Hollywood blockbusters and studied at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology in the Radio and Television Arts programme. He had a passion for making costumes and props which soon moved into writing and directing his own films. In 2001, he met his first wife, Megan. She said he was charming and funny and they got on straight away. She recalled that Mark had such a fascination with films that once he found something he liked, he would become fixated on it, trying to emulate it in every way. She soon noticed that Mark was spending a lot of time online, often making bizarre and random profiles to talk to people on various sites and forums. He would have disturbing conversations with her about his desire to feel what it was like to kill someone and how he would choose the right person to murder. Already on a downward spiral, the relationship started to crumble even more when Megan found out that Mark was being unfaithful and lying to her constantly. After just four years together, the pair would divorce. Mark then met his second wife, Jess, and the pair would go on to have a daughter. He bought his new family a lovely home, but little did Jess know it had been purchased using fraudulent documents that he had used to get the mortgage. He would soon quit his job, but regularly would drive into town pretending as if he was still working while living off investors' money. He threw himself into his script writing and directing even more, and in 2007, he directed a full-length fan film prequel called Star Wars Secrets of the Rebellion, which even included a cameo by Jeremy Bullock, a British actor known for his role as Boba Fett in Star Wars. Mark spent a lot of time recreating costumes and making props for the film. Although it garnered a decent amount of buzz and attention online, the film would never see a release. Mark then went on to shoot an eight-minute-long horror film called House of Cards. The storyline was about a man who goes to meet a woman he met online, only to realise he had been lured there by someone using a fake profile. Once inside, the man was attacked and bound to a table, where he was murdered by a man in a hockey mask. On September 1st, 2008, he started renting a garage to film in. Mark had handed out leaflets to neighbours saying that he would be shooting a lot and if they heard any screams coming from the garage over the coming weeks, not to be alarmed. He also had a strong fixation with the TV show Dexter, a crime drama about a forensic technician, Dexter Morgan, who doubled as a vigilante serial killer. He became so obsessed with the show, he often referred to himself as Dexter. 
Mark was quickly found and brought in for questioning on the 19th of October. He spent almost an hour talking to Detective Mike Tabler and was very keen to talk about his love of films and his latest scripts and projects. Now, what, what have you been filming here? Have you been filming every day or what's been going on? Nope. The, uh, well, most of my stuff is all pre-production. Uh, I knew that I was going to use it as a location for filming, so I started... And basically, I began looking for something that's suitable mm-hmm. uh, in like late August. Yeah. So I uh, found that garage, found that it was an ideal location. It worked great for what our purposes were, mm-hmm. and uh, rented it. The only time that we actually spent shooting in that place was the last weekend of September. The last weekend of September. Yeah. Before that, uh, we were in and out throughout the month for production design purposes, which was building our set pieces. Uh, getting things set up in there, power, that kind of thing, getting everything. So you, uh, what type of film is it or, uh, that you're shooting at this particular time? That you're talking about shooting at this, uh, like, uh, what sort of a film is it? It's a suspense thriller, actually. It's a short film. Uh, the total runtime will be about eight or nine minutes. Okay. So, yeah. Suspense thriller? Right. Okay, and, uh, what would you do in a film like this once you've filmed eight or nine minutes? Uh, go through the editing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try to organize it so that it didn't have a lot of effects work to do so that it wouldn't feel... Tabler quickly got back to the questions at hand and wanted to know who had access to his makeshift studio garage. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so getting back here, the only person that would have had access is Mike Young or yourself to that place. Yeah. Now, tonight you were asked to go down there and meet our constables at yes. the uh, garage, and that's because they were looking for a missing person. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you were contacted, you were apparently at home in St. Elmer, which is quite a distance from this. He then told Tabler he remembered seeing the padlock to the garage look like it had been tampered with, and this could have been how someone got in. Went uh, down the side of the garage, came back around, looked at the, the door itself, and the first thing that I noticed upon looking a little closer at it, so the light wasn't that great, but I could see what was going on, the padlock didn't look familiar to me. Okay. And uh, I, I was the one that actually put the latch on the door, mm-hmm. and I had a padlock previously, but it wasn't the same one. So you noticed a different padlock? Yeah. And... And then on the door. Right. Now, what other locks are there on that door? Can you describe? Uh, there's also a deadbolt. A deadbolt? Yeah. Okay. So, regular doorknob, deadbolt, <laughs> and then a padlock. Okay, and the padlock was the uh, padlock through, it was through a, a, a latch of some sort mm-hmm. yeah, that, that would hold the door, close yeah. the lock. And that was the same, but the lock itself was different. Correct. Have you been back there since that filming? Yeah, a couple yeah. times. Yeah. When was that? Oh, let's see. I went back... Uh, I don't remember the exact date, but I went back uh, one time because we had like a table saw and a bunch of tools that were there, and uh, my dad stores that stuff in his garage, so I told him, you know what, come meet me, we'll order it up and get rid of it. Um, the next time was when I was taking delivery of a uh, steel drum using this garbage can, basically. So. Yeah. And then last Friday, but uh, just getting some stuff out of there. Um, that was. When you say last Friday, do you mean the one just passed? And I mean, we're now in Sunday morning. 
Mark continued to steer the conversation back to his production work. I basically do sell equity in the film. So they'll, if I have a budget worked out, then I need so much money to make the movie. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Because what they're essentially doing is lending us 10% of our budget in the short term in order to get the full one. Yeah. Only a little bit less because instead of having one person do eight jobs on a no-budget indie, yeah. each person can focus on their one thing on the feature and we're good. So. Yeah. Tablet again turned the conversation back to the garage and the missing Johnny. Mark told Detective Tabler he had no idea who Johnny Altinger was and he had never heard of anyone called Jen either. Uh, me, uh, I'm just thinking about this. I mean, it's kind of odd that you're filming that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And we end up going to that garage because of a missing person yeah. who supposedly went there. That's really freaky too. And as soon as they called me on the phone, as soon as Maxwell called me and said that, you know, this is what's going on, I just, this weird chill. So, now you've been told that we're looking for a missing man. Mm-hmm. Okay. The name is John. Okay. Altinger. A-L-T-I-N-G-E-R. Okay. Does that name ring a bell to you or mean anything to you? No. Never heard it before? No. He's nobody that you've been using as an actor or that maybe uh, Mike or Jason would have been in touch with? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't know if Mike or Jay know him, but nothing that in terms of casting or production crew or anything like that. No. No. Okay, the indications we have, and we've got this through our investigations, and the address comes up, and the, the garage is described, and he actually says that he was there on that particular day. The particular day we're talking about is, that, is the, I think, the 15th. And that's the day you're indicating that you were probably down there putting supplies there. Okay, yeah. Okay. And it was in and around the same sort of time frame that you were there. You know, that he would have been there. Okay. Like in the afternoon. Really? Yeah. And he was supposed to go there and meet a girl. All of a sudden, he disappears. Last known place was there. Said he went there. Met a guy. The girl wasn't there. Met a guy in the garage. In the garage? Apparently. Okay. So, okay, let me get this straight. Yeah. The guy who's missing. Yeah. Shows up to my garage. Claims to have been in it. Yeah, and talked to a guy. Talked to another guy. Yeah. So now there's two of them. And then he leaves. Because the girl's not there. That he's supposedly. Right. Okay. Okay. And then he talks to her on the phone. I don't know that he talks to her on the phone or if he gets a message from her or which way that one was. Okay. Okay. He somehow ends up communicating yeah. with her. And then 
I'll go back to the garage. Now, does that sound like anything that you know about? Not at all. Does it sound like anything that could be related in any way to any movie sort of stuff you're doing? Or? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, no, I don't know anything about that. No. So the name Jen doesn't mean anything to you. You don't know a Jen. You don't have an actress named Jen. For the most part, detectives were satisfied that his answers seemed plausible. He appeared honest and forthcoming, and he was not deemed a suspect. The police needed to look elsewhere, and they took to the public to try and get more information about Johnny. Two witnesses came forward reporting to have seen who they now believed to be him. It was the couple that had actually seen Jill running away from the garage that day, not Johnny. Because of the times and dates they told police they saw this happen, authorities now knew... This was no isolated incident, and there was a potential second victim out there. They thought that if they could find this mystery man, they could find Johnny too. Police received word that Johnny had a red Mazda. After his first interview with Detective Tabler, Mark sent an email over to him with some more info that might be useful. In this email, he said he had recently bought a car worth $20,000 from a complete stranger in the street for just $40. It was all too coincidental and his story now seemed totally improbable. Mark then sent a second email to his production team, requesting that they stop talking to the police. He was immediately called in for another interview. There's something else I want to tell you, Mark, and that's that there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that you're involved in the disappearance of John Altinger. No doubt in my mind at all, Mark. Why? I just want to get to the bottom of this, because this is not going to go away. It's not going to leave you, Mark. I don't understand. I'm going to explain some of the reasons to you. But you do understand, because you know what I'm talking about. You're involved in this. I mean, talking to you here tonight, you seem like a decent guy. And I think that something happened that night that maybe you just didn't have total control of. This is going to keep on eating at you and eating at you. I just feel like I'm in the fucking twilight zone right now. You know very well that you don't buy a car that's worth over $10,000 from someone for $40. You know that. That part of your story is just, it's just lie after lie after lie. And it's time to end those lies, Mark. Yeah, you're involved over your head in this. Is anything that you're saying genuine, or is this some sort of tactic? you got to get away from the acting part, Mark, and listen to what I'm saying. You have told me nothing but lies. An innocent man does not come in here and tell lies. So get out of your film producer mode and the facade of thinking that everyone's an actor. Because this is real life. I need some time. I need to be able to sleep. This isn't going to go away while you sleep, Mark. I don't. 
Was this an accident? How did it happen, Mark? I want to get to the finish line, but at the same time, I think... Uh, well, I think we should get to the finish consulting line. Consulting with the lawyers would be really important. You can do that at any time you want. You know exactly why you're here. Because John's gone missing. The reason you're sitting there. You sure the guy that made him go missing? With the interview now at a standstill, Mark was free to walk out. Authorities got warrants to conduct a thorough search of the garage and Mark's home and confiscated some bits and pieces, including his laptop. The garage was small, cold and fairly empty. A table, some cabinets and various random props and boxes were scattered around and the windows were covered over. Police used luminol in the hopes of detecting any blood. The garage was covered and showed an extremely grisly scene had taken place. While looking through his laptop, they found some extremely disturbing documents. They discovered a dark and violent 42-page document that Mark had deleted. It was called SK Confessions, later understood to be Serial Killer Confessions. It began, this story is based on true events. The names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. It spoke of his descent into becoming a serial killer and how he would lure victims using online profiles, detailing the horrific things he wanted to do to them. In the document, Mark wrote in detail about the murder of a man named Jim. Jim, police could only assume, was Johnny Altinger. He talked of stabbing him and watching him bleed out on the floor as the victim gave him a pure Hollywood reaction. I grabbed his jaw with my gloved hand and moved it while making a funny voice to make it look like it was talking and chuckled to myself at the total silliness of it all, part of the story read, before he detailed how he dismembered the body like a pumpkin for Halloween. Throughout the writing, he talked of finding a garage to use as a location as well as sourcing his hockey mask props and knives. He referred to this garage as his kill room. Police impounded Mark's car as well, and a search found Johnny's blood inside, as well as a post-it note reminding him to clean up his kill room, and then cheat on his wife. From all of this piece together, police concluded that on the day Johnny had gone to meet with the person he thought was Jen, he had actually been met with Mark Twitchell. Mark bludgeoned him with a pipe before stabbing him to death and dismembering him. He tried and failed to burn Johnny's body and eventually put his remains in a sewer. In another document he wrote called Profile of a Psychopath, he admitted to being a pathological liar that cheated constantly and was unable to hold down jobs as he despised working for anyone but himself. Mark Twitchell was arrested on the 31st of October 2008 and was charged with first-degree murder the same day. He and his second wife Jess were divorced shortly after his arrest. Mark then spent the day driving around in the back of the police car with detectives pleading with him to tell them where Johnny's body was. Mark stayed silent the whole journey. He was also taken back to the garage, but still, he said nothing. So, how did you lock this gate up to make him go in the overhead door? 
What did you do to lock it up? See that? Take a look at those windows right there. See how easy it is for the neighbors to see who's doing it? See that? See that there? Beautiful view coming from the neighbor's house, either side. See who's doing this. Too easy. Way too easy, Mark. Bring back any memories? You want to tell us where the body is now? We'll get this over with, get you back to the station. Gilles Tetro, who had now heard the details about Johnny's case, would walk into the police station and tell them everything that had happened to him, making the detective's already strong case against Mark even stronger. He must have grabbed me, and um, we started struggling. Oh, and I'm guessing during this, that's when I'm like, okay, i got to try to fight. And that's something I missed, actually. I tried punching him too, but I was so weak. And I remember trying to punch him, and I know I can't hit this mask because that's going to hurt my hands, so I'm trying to punch him in his chest. And I'm thinking, man, why am I so weak? And my punches are, I feel like I'm not doing anything. And it's like my punches are so weak. And then, uh, so I realized, okay, I'm punching him. I'm not going to do anything. He's way bigger than me. And I I'm not, can't do anything. So then I started uh, trying to kick him in the f But I tried a few times doing that. Uh, Did you get him? No. Did you hit him? No. Couldn't. And Did he hit you? No. What about kick you? Uh, he tried, but he, 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 I, I swerved as well. So I, like, is this an all intense battle, or is it like... No, that's the thing, is like, this is the whole thing, this is what I'm thinking. While I'm doing this, this guy, he had, if he was more professional, he could have killed me right away. Like, right when I walked in, I didn't see him, he could have hit me over the head with a, a, a bat, a, a baton, or anything. Mm -hmm. He could have knocked me unconscious right away. And I, I don't know why he did that. His whole plan was to use this taser thing on me first. I and mean, I was stupid on his part. But he had many chances to kill me. He never did. And for some reason, again, it would have been more effective for him to punch me in the nose, the eyes, you know, something. Because if he had punched me in the nose, I'd have been down, right? But he was punching the side of the head. I grabbed the gun. Somehow we maneuvered. We were um, struggling again. And I'm trying to break the gun, right? So we're struggling, and somehow I ended up this way again. <laughs> I know it's plastic, and I know if I... What's he doing? He, he's yelling at me because he doesn't want me touching his gun. And so then uh, I wouldn't let go, obviously. But And I had a hold of his arm, his other arm, just in case he tried to punch me in the left, but he never did. And so we're just struggling. I'm just... You, you can tell... It's just weird that because he, if he was a real gun, he would have fired it or whatnot. He never did. He had nothing, and he didn't. He he never. Just wasn't professional. It was just like it was maybe his first time. That's how I. Mark's once deleted document SK confessions describes something so similar happening to Jill that Mark could no longer justify the writing as being just a gruesome piece of fiction. Authorities searched for Johnny's remains for nearly two years, with Mark refusing to tell them what he had done to him. Eventually, Mark asked to talk to the police from his cell. He silently slid a piece of paper across the table, which was a map and a series of directions. 
This led to a sewer. Johnny's remains were finally found, just half a block away from where the search for his body had stopped. Investigators say it's a grisly case of life imitating art. Today, the high-profile murder trial of aspiring filmmaker Mark Twitchell got underway. Our Alicia Asquith was in the courtroom today. Alicia. Well, Mark, it was a big first day in court. The Crown revealed that skeletal remains of Johnny Altinger had actually been found last summer in a sewer. In March 2011, Mark Twitchell's trial began. He first offered to plead guilty to interfering with human remains, but the Crown rejected this and pushed on for a first-degree murder conviction. The case sparked a lot of media attention and Mark was frequently referred to as the Dexter Killer, given his fascination with the drama. He took to the stand in his own defence and would make some baffling claims. In a shock line of defence, he confessed to killing Johnny, but claimed he had done so as an act of self-defence. He claimed he had hatched a plan after he made his short film House of Cards. The mini-movie gave him an idea to try and create a buzz around what he hoped might turn into a franchise. He said he lured Johnny and Jill to the garage, but alleged that he was going to tell them it was all a big hoax in the hope they would write about it online and get people talking. He said he bought everything he needed to stage the garage as a kill room, and, although bizarre, he said it was something that had got out of control in a way he didn't plan for. Mark said that Johnny had become angry and a physical fight had broke out before Mark could assure Johnny it was all a joke. Mark grabbed a pipe and hit Johnny over the head before reaching for a knife and stabbing him to protect himself. He told the jurors that, in a blind panic, he cut up Johnny's body and tried to burn it. When this failed, he cut it up some more and dumped it down a sewer. He then said he later broke into Johnny's home and wrote emails under his name to his friends and workplace before stealing his printer and laptop. And the document entitled SK Confessions? It was all just fiction and random pieces of research on serial killers, he said. After a three-week trial and just four hours of deliberations... Mark Twitchell was found guilty and handed a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. He then faced an attempted murder charge for luring and attacking Jill, but this charge would later be dropped as he had already secured the maximum sentence possible. Mark appealed his conviction on the basis that he felt the media was so focused on the case and the reporting was so sensationalised that it affected the jury and created bias. He soon dropped his appeal. The TV show Dexter had also been a huge focus before, during and after the trial, but the writer of Dexter weighed in and said, Reading Dexter will not make you a serial killer. If you are not already capable of killing another human being in a cold, cruel, deliberate way, no book ever written will make you capable of doing so. There is no magic words that will turn you into a psychopath. In May 2013, it was reported that Mark had purchased a TV for his prison cell, so he could catch up on every Dexter episode that he had missed since he was arrested. He also set up a dating page on a site for inmates. He said he had made some terrible, regrettable choices and is looking for an interesting, intelligent, open-minded, delightfully imperfect woman to relate to and share amusing observations with. After his traumatic ordeal with Mark, Gilles Tetro met with Johnny Altinger's mother. He said that she had held his hand and said she was so happy he was still here. He went on to write a book about his experience. It is unknown how far Mark Twitchell would have taken his crimes had he not been caught. He was obsessed with blurring fantasy and reality, and confused fame with infamy in the most disturbing way imaginable. 
Gilles continues to rebuild his life and move past the traumatic events of that day in October 2008. And Johnny's family and friends continue to remember his fun-loving and kind personality. They are determined that his life will not be defined by the appalling crime committed against him. He will instead be remembered for the joy and laughter that he brought to so many people.